Mick Goodman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity. And here comes Viander Cross. Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. Viander Cross inch by inches wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but Naturalism wins at a half This podcast is brought to you by finish. Racing New Cavalry South Wales, Sky Racing, and Pride's Easy Feed. Sydney Racing has a new $2 million thoroughbred race with the historic Group 2 Villiers getting a new name and a huge prize money boost from $750,000 to $2 million. A few months ago, Racing New South Wales and the Australian Turf Club made a joint announcement confirming that the great old end-of-year Randwick Mile, the Villiers, would be renamed the Ingham in honour of one of racing's most influential and successful racing families. The inaugural running of the Ingham will be held at Randwick on December the 10th. The sponsorship for every other race on the Ingham program, including the half million dollar Inglis nursery, are being sold down with all proceeds raised on the day to be donated to the Ingham Institute for Applied Medical Research. A great cause, a great day, and a top program highlighted by the Ingham. One of the best-known faces on the Sky Thoroughbred Central team belongs to Glenn Munsey. Nowadays described as a senior presenter, he hosts Wednesday afternoon racing on Sky Thoroughbred Central and a program called News Central on Wednesday nights, followed by Formline on Thursday nights. He's on Sky Racing Radio Monday and Friday mornings and he's involved in Saturday previews on radio and TV. His race day market moves, his commentary and form analysis are greatly appreciated by punters. Glenn grew up as the son of the late Norm Munsey, a highly respected jockey whose career spanned four decades. With city opportunities limited, Norm established a strong clientele on the provincial and country tracks, and he travelled far and wide to honour commitments to a wide range of stables. From an early age, Glenn was getting to race meetings with his father, sometimes at faraway locations. He loved the buzz of the track, he loved the horses, and he loved the whole theatre of racing. His interest in form and the pursuit of winners began very early on. At age 18, he took a job as a bookies clerk in order to subsidise his university fees. His expertise in that field saw him work in later years for several high-profile bookmakers. At one stage, he developed a small business of his own supplying pre-post markets to bookies around Australia. His life took a sudden twist in 1999 when he learned the TAB was looking for a media manager. 23 years on, and Glenn Munsey is firmly ensconced in a job that fits him like a glove. It's a good story, and who better to tell it than the man himself? Welcome to the podcast, Glenn. Thank you very much, John. You make me feel pretty important, uh, that uh, (laughs) menu of... um achievements and the like you gave out there but uh yeah it, ha- it has been a well it's been a great life and uh, i hope it's going to continue for a fair while yet first up may i offer congratulations on your recent transition to the grandfather ranks 
and your eldest daughter, Ashley, is responsible for that. Yes, uh, Danica appeared into the world a few weeks ago uh, for Denise and I, our, our first grandchild. And uh, uh, John, it's only a matter of oh, less than a month away until grandchild number two is due to enter the world when our son Todd uh, and his wife Jess uh, are due to give birth. And uh, yeah, so uh, Christmas has come early in the Munsey household. You've started a dynasty. Yeah, well, not only John am I a broodmare sire, I'm a sire of sires, and uh, <laughs> it's a wonder English haven't got me up there. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to start from scratch in your case because your career really started in that house at East Lakes where you lived with your dad, Norm, your mother, Anne, and your sisters, Michelle and Justine. What are your early recollections of Norm Munsey, the jockey? Well, as a, as a youngster, John, I, I didn't have, you know, much of an idea uh, of what a, what a jockey was. I knew Dad got up very, very early in the morning. He wasn't there uh, at breakfast time and uh, he, he'd, he'd probably arrive home, you know, 8.30, 9 o'clock. We are either getting ready to go to school or, or we'd already gone to school. Uh, some afternoons he'd be home, other afternoons he wasn't. But Saturdays he was never, ever there. Mm. Uh, you know, he, he was off and, um, you know, to, to find out that he rode horses for a living, it was, it was quite exciting. But, um, you know, if you want to trace back into the family tree, uh, Dad's family had no uh, exposure to racing whatsoever. He grew up in Campsie. Uh, his parents moved to uh, Brighton uh, and Dad actually was delivering papers around the, the Moorfields area where Moorfields was a racetrack mm. and he was only a very small man. Uh, well, a boy at that stage, and uh, the wife of uh, Billy Childs, the trainer there at Moorfield, said, you know, would you be interested in riding horses or do, having something to do with horses? And uh, that's how he he actually got involved in it. But uh, mm -hmm. on my mother's side, uh, it's got a much, much deeper um, lineage of racing. My, my mother's father was a jockey, Keith Cook, mm -hmm. and his father was a jockey and a trainer, was actually, uh, he, in later years, I think he may have even been one of the clockers at uh, Rosebury. Mm. I know my grandfather would trained a couple of horses at Rosebury. So the racing side of things comes from a mother's side rather than my father's side. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and to, to think that that's what your dad did for a living yeah. uh, was quite exciting, really, because uh, there wasn't the exposure of racing. You know, we're talking about the, the late 60s here, mm. um, you know, when I was you know getting to the stage where I knew what he was doing. And, of course, you know, through the 70s and that, racing didn't have the exposure that it had now. Uh, and uh, as you said in the intro there, Dad was more of a provincial and country jockey. I know during his um, younger years, he was one of the leading apprentices in Sydney. And, uh, you know, for the trainers that he did ride for at Moorfields, he actually rode for Sir Frank Packer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they tell me one day they were on one that was, uh, I think it might have been 300 to 1 to 4 to 1 in a welter mm. uh, at Rose Hill. So, you know, uh, that success was there. Um, but, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, you just did your normal things as a kid. You know, uh, yeah. when someone said to you, what does your dad do? They said, well, he's a, he's a jockey. Well, mm. most young kids of my age didn't know really what a jockey was. No, of course. And, and you had to explain to them. And they thought, you know, he was probably like the, if you went to the Easter show or something and they, you know, you went on a pony ride. Mm. Something like that. And I said, no, no, he actually rides them in races and, uh, you know, they go around a track and things like that and he drives all around New South Wales to ride them. And, mm. uh, you know, it, it, the situations if you're growing up playing, you know, rugby league or you're playing cricket, 
um, you know, Dad never had the opportunity to watch you play because more often than not you play on a Saturday uh, because he, he was at the races. Mm, of course. I think Sir Frank Packer took a liking to your dad in those early days and I can remember Norm telling me once every now and again he'd visit Sir Frank in his city office and sometimes he'd come away with a nice little gratuity. Yeah, he, uh, it, uh, Dad said uh, Sir Frank would invite him in and he'd say, I've got to put the paper to bed. Uh, that was a terminology used there when the print run had finished and the paper, so the day's work had finished, the, the, the evening paper had gone out and the morning paper, you know, whatever, and uh, Sir Frank had invited him in there. And, uh, yeah, sometimes he, he might have got away with a, uh, a small gift from uh, Sir Frank, but uh, I suppose, John, when they're 300 to 1 to 4 to 1 uh, one day or whatever, uh, you're probably entitled to get away with something. You're entitled to get something out of a fluctuation of that magnitude. <laughs> Now, when your dad came out of his time, he decided to ride track work at Canterbury, where there was a definite shortage of work riders. And for years and years, he looked after several small trainers who in the main had mediocre horses, but every now and again, one of them had come up with a really nice horse and your old man would identify it pretty quickly. Yes. Uh, well, as I said, he grew up and he was apprenticed at Moorfields. Well, when Moorfields closed down, uh, a number of trainers moved to Canterbury County. It was only very, very new as a training operation in that. And he actually um, he, he bought a house at, uh, at East Lakes and he went to Randwick for a very, very short period of time and then decided to, to ride work at Canterbury with those trainers that had moved across from Moorfields. But Canterbury was never, ever a massive training operation. It was uh, – I know Jack Denham kicked off his career mm. uh, training at Canterbury, and he'd probably be the highest-profile trainer to ever train on the Canterbury track, but then Jack eventually moved to, to Rose Hill. Uh, but it was always a mecca for, for smaller trainers and smaller strings. They had on-course stables there in the early days, uh, you know, trainers like Billy McCurley, Bob Mead uh, and the like there. They were pretty high-profile pro, pro, high trainers. They were. Uh, but mm. in, the, in the later years, uh, probably, you know, it was a starting point for a lot of trainers. Um, you know, Gary Nixon, who's still training at the moment, he kicked off his career there. Lee Curtis kicked off his career at Canterbury. Yes, Timmy Donnelly, mm. uh, when he first got a licence, um, he was he was training out of Canterbury. Mm. Um, he was training uh, horses for Vic Hayes, yeah. uh, who's, who's the father of David Van Dyke, uh, mm. the carry-oy horses, mm. uh, and he was training there. But, you know, those, uh, you know, in those days, you know, hobby trainers uh, were probably a term used more nowadays, but, they, you know, there was a trainer there. He'd have to go to work, and he'd be mm. there, and he'd get his horses ready in the morning. He might only have two or three or four horses at the most because he couldn't handle a big string because no. he had a he actually had a, a job, a nine-to-five job to go to that he had to probably um, use a bit of creativity if he if he ever had a runner during the week that he couldn't go to work. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of blokes like Splinter Duggan, Skeeter Hazelton, Colin Vickery, Gary Toogood, Bruce Cross, John Berry, Ron McDonald. Have I missed any? 
Yeah, well, uh, there's another man there by the name of Keith Hill, um, and he trained a very, very good horse at Dad Road by the name of Only You. She was a mare. She won a couple of races in town. Now, he was only a man that he'd be lucky to have more than two horses. And you'd find in those days, John, that the people that had stables might have, say, 10 boxes in the stables, whether they're in the back of a house or whatever. But there could be three or four trainers that were in those those stables because everyone only had a couple of horses. Mm, absolutely. I just thought of another one, Glenn, and this is a brilliant piece of trivia. You could use this at a dinner party. Name the Canterbury trained filly who won a Victorian Oaks. The Squiddy Spirit. Bonnie Bell. Oh, Bonnie, well, I'm, I'm a bit later than that, John. I, yeah. I don't go back as far as you. But yeah, Bonnie, I'm a but... Bit, Lee Curtis was training at Rose Hill then. I thought you were still referring yeah. to trainer. Well, the Mystigic, who was a very, very good horse, and I mm. think Lee might have even been trained still at Canterbury. Another couple of trainers there that um, uh still going around. Brucey Cross is still training at the moment, trained the last winner at Gosford mm. uh, last Saturday. And he's a he's a lovely man, Brucey Cross. He's a Group 1 winning trainer. Mm. Uh, Theo Jacobson, one of the, the funniest men you will ever have the um, uh, the time to sit down and talk to. He trained at Canterbury. Mm. Um, Con Karakatsanis and yeah. his dad, Tony, uh, they trained a, a gentleman by the name of Carl Spies. who was a yep. – uh, he was a little bit on the eccentric side, Carl. Uh, he was a man that um, – he actually owned the resident Swifts, uh, which is near the Asham School, mm. uh, the Double Bay area. And in those days, um, uh, when houses, if someone told you a house was, you know, in the double figures, million dollar wise, well, you'd think you were buying half of Sydney. But Carl mm. actually owned that residence, mm. and he was a horse trainer at Canterbury. Stephen Jones, yeah, there's off another his, one, yeah, his career uh, at Canterbury. Uh, so, you know, and, and some of them are still going, they're battling around. Rod Craig, here they go. Yeah, so Rod was another uh, one, John fun- Wenman's another one. Yeah, Johnny Winman lived actually lived around the corner mm. uh, at East Lakes from Mum and Dad, and yeah. he'd travel all the way to Canterbury uh, to look after his horses. Yeah, and apologies for those we've missed. I'm sure there'll be a few more. Talking to your mum the other day, and I'm sure you'd be aware of this, but you may have forgotten, she tells me the day you were born, your dad rode the Adaminaby Cup winner, a horse called Dominant Jean. Did you know that? Yes, I did, and uh, my 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 sister Michelle. She was born on Christmas Eve uh, in nineteen sixty, and I've got an inkling that he may have even ridden ridden a winner that day. If not, uh, may have been the day before. Mm. Uh, but I know Dad uh, did ride Adam Inaby, and I'm sure I read something on uh, no, that was Art Leithan. Adam Inaby. Well, the Adam Inaby Cup couldn't be run this year; was transferred to the Sapphire Coast. Might have been last Saturday. Correct. And was won by Barbara Joseph and. Uh, um, Paul um, and um, Matthew, was it? Matthew, yeah, 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 the Joseph Jones and Jones team. That was mm. the Adam Inaby Cup last Saturday. Mm. Twenty years after your dad won the cup, Adam Inaby Racecourse doubled as the Agua Caliente track in the making of the Farlap movie. So, Glenn, it was famous on two counts. Yeah, and another track down that way, John, I'm sure, was used as the film set for the Australian movie The Sundowners. That was uh, Adam Inaby also. Yeah, Clifford James Clare, I think you'll find, was uh, had a uh, had a part in that. Now, you speak of the Farlap movie, 
dad's name appears in the credits of the Farlap movie, and he says he never ever had any involvement with it whatsoever. So mm-hmm. I don't know how his name appeared in the credits. Got a free one. Yeah, well, I was looking for the gratuities that might have come for <laughs> The royalties. Yes. Now, Glenn, every now and again, your dad would help to get a Canterbury horse ready for a city race. You know, I'll never forget a filly trained by Ron McDonald by the name of Currency Bell. She won a two-year-old fillies race at Warwick Farm on a Saturday. She was backed off the map and she duly saluted with N. Munsey in the saddle. Yes, and uh, Dad, uh, when he uh, eventually, he was a mad keen fisherman, Dad, and uh, when he when he bought a boat, the boat was named the Bell. And uh, it was the reason it was named the Bell, it was named after Currency Bell. There was also Currency Bow Yeah. Uh, in those there. And, and you talk about Dad, you know, getting horses ready. Frankie Cleary actually told me um, not too long ago, and Frank's probably, apart from Clan O'Sullivan, the most famous horse Frank Cleary's ever been associated with was Wayne's Bit. Yeah. And, and he brought it to to Sydney and, it, and he, he was getting it ready for a race in Sydney and uh, whoever was going to ride at work couldn't ride at work. And he asked Dad to ride at work because Frankie is related to City Carter mm-hmm. and City Carter was Dad's groomsman or best man at his wedding. So he said, oh, you know, you've made a City Carter. said, so can you, you know, send this around and everything like that. So Dad rode at work at Canterbury and he came back in and Frank said, well, how did it go? And Dad said, where's it going? Mm. And he said, oh, no, it's going to town on Saturday. He said, unbeatable. Oh, he was a good judge, your old man. He but, really... and, and, of course, and, of course, it did win. Yeah. Uh, Dad wasn't running. I think Malcolm Johnson might have written it. As it did. But mm. Frankie actually repaid him years, well, not years, but after that mm. he took it to Brisbane for the Lightning and he couldn't get anyone to ride it. And Dad actually went to Brisbane in the Lightning, which was in those days was a 1,000-metre or five-furlong race at Eagle Farm mm. uh, out of the shoot at Eagle Farm. And I think it might have drawn the car park, but it still ran a competitive race. But, yeah, from, uh, I, I run into Frank quite regularly when I go to Canberra, and uh, he did tell me that story about when he brought Wayne's bit to Sydney. And, and put it this way, it gave Frank an enormous amount of confidence mm. uh, leading into the race on the Saturday. Oh, yeah. Every trainer at Canberra, wanted Norm's opinion if they thought they had one good enough. Now, Glenn, yes, perhaps he, he you, had, he had yeah. one other trick, John. There, uh, Dad would usually be the first to the track, and in those days, you know, you had to if it had been raining or anything like that. And he had a trick if they were if they were getting one ready for a race, he'd make sure that he went out. Especially on the at Canterbury in those days, you had the course proper. You had an inside grass, which mm. was a very tight. You know how tight Canterbury is. Well, the inside yeah. grass was that. Then they had a cinders track. Mm. Well, they had the grass. They said, "Well, we'll see how good the grass is." And Dad was getting one ready with uh, whoever it was for. Mm. He said, "Well, I'll go out there and see what it's like." So he went out there and rode this horse that they were getting ready, and it worked mm. really good. They came back in. They said, what's the track like? He said, no, 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 no one could be working on that. that that's impossible to be working on. But he made sure the horse they were getting ready had its fast gallop <laughs> on the track and no one else could get on it. Yeah, got first go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was an absolute statesman. Perhaps his favourite horse, Glenn, was Airfield, trained initially by Matey Malloy at Orange, and later by Ron McDonald at Canterbury. Now, the day he won his maiden was an unforgettable day for all concerned. 
Yes, uh, Airfield, uh, John, uh, as you said, Matey Malloy trained it. I think it had had either two or three starts and run some competitive midfield efforts out there. So it came to uh, Gosford on a Thursday and you know, people looked at the form and said, well, you know, I don't know about this horse here. Uh, I think you'll find in those days there'd probably be uh, at least 25 bookies at Gosford. Um, it was uh, six to one to, I think it might have run six to four or shorter. Uh, one with its head on its chest in a maiden and yeah. ran faster time than the flying mm. and may have won about its next five or six runs. Oh, he was a very smart horse. He won 11 all up. I think Norm rode him in every one of them. And you got to strap him a little bit at one stage. Yeah, well, in the days, John, when I was a schoolboy, because this was in the late 70s, so I was. Um, mid-teens at that stage, uh, uh, there was no such thing uh, in holiday time or anything like that of laying around. Uh, you had to get up, and uh, Ronnie McDonald had probably three or four horses in work at uh, Canterbury. He was the trainer of Airfield, mm. and my duty was to go to the track with Dad, uh, and when I'd get dropped off at the stables there, which is just near the car park, uh, the car park in King Street, not the car park at the back of the uh, the race course, but the other mm. car park there. And my job was to, you know, muck out the boxes, uh, get the horses ready to an extent. But my major job was to to walk them to the track and give them a decent hand walk for mm. probably 30, 40 minutes before they'd work. And Airfield was a stallion at this stage and he'd love to bite you. Uh, and I came up with the idea of... Um, probably wouldn't be au fait in these days, but I, we got a piece of like conduit, like plastic uh, piping, and we fed the lead strap through the mm. conduit, probably about 12, 18 inches long, and you'd have to lead him off that uh, because you could just, just uh, jab him a little bit under the chin when he started to try and bite you uh, because he was a very, very strong bull. Uh, and that was my job to to get them get them ready, walk them around. And as I'd walk the first one there, uh, Ronnie would bring the second one over, and Dad'd be ready to jump on the first one. Then I'd walk the second one for half an hour or whatever. And they, when the first one came in, Ronnie might you know uh, hose it down or whatever. And by this stage, um, I was ready to uh, take the first one back, the second one at work, and that was the that was the process. Uh, I can tell everyone, and uh, it wasn't child exploitation or anything like that, but the, <laughs> the wages were zero, yeah. and uh, there was an understanding that if any of them did win, there was uh, a, a small gift yeah. um, put over uh, for me looking after them. I, I never, ever strapped one at the races. Never took one to the races because Ronnie would take them to the races himself. Mm. Uh, but my job was if, of a morning just to make it easier for, for Ronnie and Dad to get them worked, uh, to give them that you know pre-walk and, and then that post-walk and uh, get them to the stables and uh, get them ready. So that, that was my job and uh, that's all I had to do. Your dad rode hundreds of winners, but he got few opportunities in major races simply because he wasn't there. Uh, he preferred to remain loyal to country clients, country or provincial trainers, and he was out of town on most Saturdays. He did run second in the Epsom one year, Glenn, I recall. Horse called yeah, 19, Sir Jean, 52, 19, wasn't it? 1952, he ran second on Sir Jean, and probably the, the next opportunity he had was a horse uh, which was trained by a very, very good trainer at the time, Robert Johnson. 
Mm. Uh, but Hawkesbury called Macro Boy. Yes. Uh, I think he might. It was a it was a good mile race around with whether it was a Villiers or an Epsom. I don't think it was a Doncaster, and it ran into Dalmatia. Oh dear me! Yeah, Epsom. Mm. Yeah, Dalmatia won an Epsom. After leaving school, you enrolled for a business studies course at university, sub-majoring in business administration, personal and industrial relations. And in order to help pay for those university fees, you sought a part-time job as a bookies clerk and you landed one with a bookie called Kevin Layton. But firstly, you attained that university degree and I imagine that's been no load to carry. Uh, well, John, um, you know, mum and dad were very happy because I think it worked out to be 17 years after I got the degree, I actually got a proper job. Uh, so so all of that study and everything, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left school. John, you're 17 years of age and uh, you've got a lot of outside interests. You know, I was playing football, I was playing cricket, I was chasing girls, I was going to the beach, I was going to the races. Uh, I applied for quite a few jobs. I, computers had only just uh, been basically invented at that stage and I had a slight interest in that but uh, it didn't really grab me so I said what will I do I said well I was always good with figures Uh, I didn't want to be an accountant Uh, I said but they've got this business studies degree you could do which is um, you know a little bit of a generalization of a few things and it was the New South Wales Institute of Technology it was called at that uh, that stage and the main campus was located at Broadway which is now the the Institute of Technology or uh, and the, the other campus was in, located in the old Anthony Hordens building Mm-hmm. which is on the corner of Goulburn Street and George Street in the city. Mm-hmm. And it was quite ironic that, you know, all those years later when I was working for TAB, they moved their offices to the corner of Goulburn Street and George Street in a new developed um, uh, set of complexes there. So mm-hmm. I, I'd gone the full circle. But, yeah, university was, was a great uh, – was always great. You know, it was just like being at school and – I got a bit of interest in, you know, I didn't, as I said, I didn't want to be an accountant, but business always uh, excited me and, uh, and you had to take sub-majors. So I said, well, business administration, personnel and industrial relations, the union movement and a few things like that. Uh, Dad was a very staunch liberal man, so I thought I'd get interested in the union movement and see what the Labor Party did just to aggravate. <laughs> That's right. Just to annoy him. Absolutely. Well, you got pretty good at the caper after a few months with Kevin Layton, and it wasn't long before a high-profile Sydney bookie heard of your burgeoning skills and he offered you a job. Now, you worked for Robbie Waterhouse for a number of years as a bagman in the era when he loved fielding at some of the major country meetings. You went everywhere with him. Yeah, well, John, those days was the, uh, you know, the the meetings that you'd go to, you might, uh, you'd go to the the Saturday meetings, of course, Robbie would want to work anywhere. And that was, uh, you know, Newcastle raced on a lot of Tuesdays. You had your Metropolitan meeting of a Wednesday, your Provincials of a Thursday. He also worked at the Trots. I didn't work very much at the Trots for him. I was still playing uh, rugby league at the time mm. and we train on a Friday night and, uh, and and we'd play on a Sunday so it actually 
was tied in very, very well with me uh, because I could train Friday nights and play Sunday and, and do everything on, on other days. But mm. we'd, go, we'd go to Black Opal Day at Canberra on a Sunday and Wellington might be mm. uh, on the next day and Newcastle might be the Tuesday. So you'd set off in the car Sunday morning. You'd go from then Canberra to Wellington and cut cross country through um, – the, the back of the Hunter Valley to go to, to Newcastle on the Tuesday and then you get home Tuesday night and you're at the races Wednesday. And, mm. and in those days, you could make a serious living uh, out of being a bookmaker's clerk because if you had the skills and working for Kevin Layton, um, he told me, now, you've got to, you've got to start at the bottom. He, I said, I don't care where I start and the bottom's always a good place to start. But mm. I started at the payout and I, I had to learn what the ledger actually represented in the in the bookmaker side of things which in the ledger of course is the record of all the bets taken well mm. anyone with it, they don't have ledgers now they're all printed by computers but to see all these figures and hieroglyphics that were put down by the penciler mm. uh, my job was to learn that and, and you were you were told to learn all facets of the bookmaking operation it's just not a matter of getting there and putting the bag around your neck and saying right away you go because you know you might have to call the bets so you had, your maths had to be good if someone wants thirty dollars on an eleven to eight chance. Mm. You had to work out that it was forty two, uh, whatever, forty one to quarter or something like that to thirty mm-hmm. uh, to help the the bookie out. So you know you're on your toes the whole day, and you might have to be at the payout. You might have to be on the ground, you know, running the prices back. And I eventually, you know, mastered uh, being on the bag. And you know, in those days, you know, the amount of cash that you were handling in a day was phenomenal. Mm. And there's nowhere near that amount of cash. But Robbie asked me uh, actually to work for him, and we had a we have a very very good relationship. Still got a great relationship today um, about working everywhere. And Robbie was very very good to me because you know he evidently thought I was dependent, knew what I was doing, and he could re- rely on me. Mm. Uh, even when uh, he, he regularly in those days he was courting gay in the early days, uh, and then even in those days when they were married, they, they'd take their certain amount of time off in the middle of the year and Robbie would get someone to replace him, but he'd, he'd keep working and um, you'd be doing the settling and different things like that. So you learnt a massive amount of the business. Yeah, of course. You were with R- Robbie Waterhouse when the infamous fine cotton scandal erupted and for weeks on end he was the centre of attention from television cameras and press photographers. In every TV segment and in every newspaper photo – your head appeared, and it started to wear you down a bit, didn't it? Yeah, well, uh, it, it was in those days, John, um, you know, a, a lot of the references were, you know, bookmaker Robbie Waterhouse, and it'd be uh, Clark Glenn Munsey, the son of jockey Norm Munsey. Well, mm-hmm. um, you know, I didn't want, you know, Dad's name being brought into anything. I'd done nothing wrong, and, you know, it, it, they knew that. But I, I said to Robbie, I said, mate, I, I just can't handle this every single day, someone putting a camera in my face. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just said to him, I said, mate, I, I've just got to get away. I, yeah. I just want to, you know, just have a break. Because, you know, in, in when you're working for different bookmakers, there's no such thing as holiday pay and um, leave and different things like that. If you mm. didn't work, you didn't get paid. But I just said to him, I said, look, I've just got to get away for a while and, and, and let this die down or whatever. Mm. Um, and he said, yeah, mate, he said, I, I, I fully appreciate what it is. Mm. Um, and I said to mum and dad, I said, look, I've just got to get away for a while because I don't want, you know, your, your name's being brought into this, you know, yeah. every time there's a news bulletin. Mm. 
Glenn, we'll just pause the times flashing past here, mate. We'll pause for a break on the podcast and we'll come back with you after this. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance by stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race, and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's easy performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. My special guest is Glenn Munsey. You've always enjoyed a flutter and you pride yourself on getting an odd long shot home. In 1994, you came up with your magnum opus, you had $50 each way on a horse called Oxford Prince at the unimaginable odds of 200 to 1. The trainer was Gary Nixon, the jockey was Gary Matthews, and his form was lousy. How did you think he could win a two-year-old race at Randwick? Well, John, I, at that stage, I was actually doing a bit of work for some people, um, Mark Reed, Dominic Byrne. I was doing some video comments Um over the years, I'd worked for a number of different people. I was actually employed for a period of time by the staff of Mark Reed, uh, and Mark Reed has, uh, you know, given some starts to some amazing people in racing. Mark Sheen, Michael Fraser, um, also Johnny Size, um, Robert Burney, whose son Nick Burney is now for Racing New South Wales and works for for Sky. I, I was uh, Shane Montgomery. Mm. Uh, I was employed to actually put their bets on for them at the races, and they were pumping very, very big. Mm. But I, and, and they were all into the video commentary, and Mark was into a card system. And I, I was doing some comments on um, Kembla races, also Hawkesbury races, a few other meetings and city meetings. And Mark Sheen actually was educating me about the sectional timing, you know, clocking horses, because Mark and I would go to the trials. Mark was employed by the midweeker to call the trials, but he was the man that was providing the comments for the trials in the midweeker. So Mark and I would be in the, the broadcast box and I'd be doing like the run-throughs of Mark, you know, where they were, and, and then Mark would do a comment and everything. Mm. So I, I transferred that over to the races. And this horse uh, had run at Cessnock. I think it had run at Wyong. And then one day at Kembla, it um, came from last in a field of 16 or something at Kembla in a 1,200-metre race and made a good bit of ground and, um, you know, its last 600 in those days was pretty good compared to others on the day. And when you talk about 1994 and sectionals and people, you now it's 2022, yeah. uh, people think they've just been invented in the last five minutes. But uh, <laughs> I can guarantee you they weren't. So I actually had my business at that stage. I was pricing up the races. I was working for Colin Tidy. Uh, at this stage, and I was doing the pre-post markets on the city races. I was selling them to bookies around the country, and actually bookies, a couple of bookies in Papua New Guinea, Good uh, who, who mm. had to go up. Uh, my main clientele was Queensland because I had to go up before the call. 
mm. uh, in those days. And, and I just marked this horse 33 to 1. I said, now it'll be 33 to 1, and I think that's very, very good odds. You know, it's going to be back in the field and everything like that. And I had a number of people ringing me, and I just said, look, whatever you do on the day, you've got to have something on this horse. And at that stage, in June of 1994, we'd had Denise and I had had our third child in May of 1994. So we had three children basically under the age of uh, about three and a half. Mm. Uh, we weren't flying by any stretch of the imagination, I can guarantee <laughs> you that. And, uh, and I just said to her, I said, I'm going to have something on this. So I got to the races and, and Cole put it up, I think he put it up 120 to 1 or something, 125 to 1, and kept pushing it out. And I said, now, Cole, I said, this has got some chance, you know. And he said, yeah, okay, okay. I said, look, I, I haven't got a beam. Right, I mean, can I have fifty dollars each way with you? He said, certainly. Mm. Right. Well, home it came from last in a field of eighteen or whatever at Randwick. It mm. won in a photo. Yeah. And paid two hundred and thirty-six dollars on the tote. Cole walked back into the betting ring at Randwick, applauding, <laughs> and he just said, "That <laughs> is it." He said, "You I are think just so. too yeah. good." Yeah, You're too good. So I, all I could think about was the 12,500 that I'd won and trying to neck it off Cole as soon as possible. <laughs> uh, but uh, in those days, you had phones in your car, but they weren't portable, and I had a phone in my car. Big heavy and, things. Uh, yeah, it was like a – was bigger than a Besser block. Yeah. And <laughs> I can remember getting in the car and only travelling a matter of five minutes, and the mm. phone rang, and it was Denise. And the first thing she said, did you back it? And I said, Dal, there's a bottle of Dom Perignon we got for our wedding, which was five years beforehand that had been waiting for a significant occasion. I said, put it in the freezer. I'm on the way home. We've got 12,500 to give a run to. And it was, uh, you know, it was unbelievable. From that point on, the phone never stopped ringing the whole way home. Because all these people that I'd, that I'd spoken to in the morning were ringing me, uh, thanking me. Oh, I tipped it to my mum and she had $2 on it and I've, I've had this oh, on yeah. beautiful. I've, I've got mates of mine to this day still bringing up in conversation when they introduced me to a mate of theirs. This is the bloke that, you know that thing I told you about all those years ago, I bet it was 201. This is the mm. bloke that tipped it to me. Good but, but the story took a bad turn a few days later because – Denise, the money was burning a hole in her pocket. So she decided that we, we were living in, uh, we still live there now, Padstow at the time. So she decided to drive to Bankstown Square, it was called, with her mother and the youngest of the three children, Lauren, in the car mm. to um, give it a send along at uh, David Jones or something at Bankstown. Mm. Uh, after the shopping expedition, she's loaded up with a baby and all whatever goods she purchased. She walked back to where she thought the car was, oh. and the car wasn't there. And mm. she said, "Well, I must have it. I must be, you know, a bit a bit foggy." Mind. And mother said, "No, this is where we parked it." She's rang me. Someone had stolen the car, and Good. it was a beautiful white Fairmont Kia yeah. with spoke wheels that I purchased off your good mate in Ross Sinclair. Goodness me! I'd gone all the way to Penrith to buy it, mm. um, and so it's gone. So I said, well, oh, geez, what are we going to do here? So you ring the police, you ring the insurance, everything like that. Three weeks later, the insurance ring and say, right, oh, Mr. Munsey, uh, your car hasn't been found. We've processed your claim. We'll send you the cheque. Well, the next day, the police rang and said, we've found your car. I said, well, 
where like was in a, was actually on a street in Campsie mm-hmm. on four bricks. All they'd done was pinch the tyres oh, because yeah. they were the grouse spoke wheels and everything like that. Yeah, that's and, all they wanted. Yeah, and and I had to ring the insurance, and they said, "Well, we're going to stop the check." I said, "Well, what happens now? Well, you have to wait another three weeks um, till they assess the car." And I took it to a mate of mine that miraculously he said, "You can't believe how badly it's damaged underneath." Um, and I said. What do you drink? He said, oh, I said, is Johnny Walker black all right? And he said, yes. <laughs> uh, so the 12,500 eventually jumped in for, for the horse and then the car was insured for 12,500. Oh, so instead of showing a cop of 12,500, I bought another car for twenty five. So at least I got a car for nothing in the end. <laughs> he sure did. Well, Oxford Prince didn't command the same amount of press space that Farlap and Burnborough and Kingston Town did. But to you, he will always be uh, a great legend of the turf, Oxford Prince, who won that two-year-old race at Randwick in 1994 with Glenn's 50 each way on his back. You mentioned Col Tidy. You had a wonderful time working for Colin, the late Colin Tidy, one of the gentlemen of racing. And Colin played a part in another development in your life in 1999 when you applied for a job as TAB Media Manager. In fact, I think you went to Colin to seek his advice and his recommendation. Yeah, well, you know, Colin played a huge part in my life. Uh, well, Denise actually worked for Col. Uh, was one that we had met each other, you know, many, many years beforehand, but that's where we, uh, you know, our relationship really started, both working for Col. And, and Col was like a father figure to me at the time. And I, I just, I, I had to go to him to get his, you know, A, get his advice and B, get his approval um, because that's that's what Cole meant to me at the time and Denise was still working for him. And, and I just said to him, I said, you know, I went to his house and, and I sat down with him and I just said, look, I've got this opportunity. Uh, this is what they want to do. Um, what, what, you know, what do you recommend that I do? He said, well, in, in the wash-up, it, it's your decision, but put it this way. He said, I won't be here forever. Um, the, the business wasn't going anywhere near as well as it had been because uh, there were a number of bookies, mainly my country bookies, because they brought in Sunday racing at that stage. They'd moved a lot of non-tab meetings on a Saturday in the bush. And there was out in the West, for example, uh, there was bookies surviving going to, say, Dubbo on a Saturday, Geary, Narromine, Wellington, Warren. Uh, Forbes Parks, and those meetings had stopped being on a Saturday and gone to a tab meeting on a, a Friday or maybe even a, a Sunday. So, so that market that I had, it, it you know, it, it dropped off. So, um, Cole said, "Well, you know," and I said, "Well, I, I think it's going to be exciting because this is what they want to be doing and everything like that." And he said, "Well, I can guarantee it'll be exciting," uh, and that's when I said, "Okay, I'm going to do it." And that was December of 1999. Absolutely, and you've had a wonderful time and your career has been so varied uh, and interesting. Horse racing wasn't your only focus in those early days. You had to keep across many forms of sports betting, which was about a year old, wasn't it, when you started off? They kicked off with the NRL semis, didn't they? Yeah, back in those days, uh, we actually sponsored, uh, I think about July 98, they may have got their approval off the government to offer, um, well, in those days it was just called uh, betting on sport. They were called Sports Tab. It was the New South Wales Tab. 
uh, at that stage, it hadn't been privatised or and uh, or just in the process of being privatised, I should say. So you know, it was very very new. They had a staff of around about twelve. Uh, they didn't bet on many things. They were betting on rugby league. The Victorian uh, tab had been betting on sport for a few years before that, and it was a gentleman by the name of David Sim who was actually um, Wayne Cross, who'd come across from Cinebet, mm. was the was the boss of the tab. That's who I would interview with. But David Sim, uh, who was a, a, a chap that I'd, I'd known from the races, he was there as a consultant because they were in the process of analysing whether or not um, they should be offering fixed odds on the races as well as the sport. The sport mm. was going good. It was just a new concept. Uh, but they brought David in uh, to say that, you know, uh, analyse whether it would be good for them and then they said well uh, we're doing sport and you know it's starting to grow and if we bring racing and we're going to need someone who who can promote this and he said I've got the perfect bloke for you you know the racing's an absolute doll and he, he's got the and it was most important he had the, the betting terminology and the speak to be able to converse with the, your customers as to what they were actually doing because everyone was conditioned to betting paramutual or betting on the toad. So you had to educate people that when they saw the odds up there, that's the odds that they got. It was like betting with a bookie at the race. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Turnover on sports betting back then, Glenn. Can you remember what it was? I think it might have been around about forty million or something, John. It was a, it was around a drinks realistically, mm. um, and then that it just started to grow and grow. And I, I can remember uh, the day where we turned over uh, our first uh, billion dollar year. Mm. Uh, Craig Nugent was the boss at that stage, and that was a significant milestone to imagine that you could go as quickly as you did. And it was only a matter of probably you know ten to. 10 to 12 years after they first started, and now you're talking in billions mm. uh, of what, of what the, um, the the sports and racing uh, are holding. And it was um, the comparisons there, you know, people would say, oh, sports betting will never, ever get anywhere near what the hold on the races is because of the popularity of the races. Well, mm-hmm. uh, that's the paramutual side of the, the business, but as, as many people will tell you now, uh, the paramutual side of the business has been in decline for quite a while, and that is due to the popularity of what we call fixed odds betting. Yeah. Five years after joining the TAB, you and your family suffered a traumatic setback when your dad, Norm, lost his life in a freakish fishing accident at La Perouse, a place he knew so well. He was a keen rock fisherman. He followed all the rules religiously and he took extraordinary safety precautions. His body was found some distance away from the scene of the accident. And, Glenn, to this day, you don't really know what happened. No, John, it was a Friday afternoon. I'll never forget it because it was Wagga Cup Day. Uh, Denise was at Wagga working. Uh, she was still clerking at this stage, and she was she was at Wagga working. And I was in the office at Ultimo, and I just got a phone call from Mum saying, "Dad hasn't come home." And I said, "I beg your pardon." Mm. She said, um, "You know, we went through the normal thing. Mum and Dad still live at East Lakes. Mm. Uh, Dad dropped Mum at um, the East Garden Shopping Centre, which is on the corner of Bunnerong Road and Wentworth Avenue mm. at Pagewood. And what he'd do, he'd drive then out to La Perouse, and where he'd go fishing uh, 
from the rocks is uh, for people that know the golf course situation out there, it's it's the junction between St Michael's Golf Course and New South Wales Golf Course. You drive in the driveway to New South Wales Golf Course and instead of going right at the junction to New South Wales, you go left, you actually travel through the middle of St Michael's Golf Course and go out to where the Sydney Gun Club is located and funnily enough now uh not too far from there is the rescue helicopter base which sits alongside the fifth hole at new south wales golf course and dad would park the car he'd stand up on the cliff he'd look at the to see what it was doing and if the the sea wasn't to his liking he'd get back in the car and he'd go home yeah. Uh, because you had to physically climb down a ladder to the rock face, and mm-hmm. he was carrying a backpack, a bucket, a fishing rod. So he had all this um, paraphernalia with him mm-hmm. uh, that he strapped to himself or whatever, and uh, he was still a very, very fit man at this stage at uh, 60, uh, 68, uh, 69 years mm-hmm. of age, 68, 69 years of age, and had to climb down the ladder. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't fish if the seas looked. And he, and he he's religious about the tides. He's only to, you know, he, he'd fish on the rising tide uh, and then he'd get that tide coming in and as it's going out, well, as it's gone out too far, well, there's no point in being there. So, you know, he knew the right times and everything like that. Um, and to this day, we don't actually know what happened to him. Uh, uh, as I said, Mum gave me the call and said he's, he hasn't come home, so I... Um, just departed the scene from Ultimo. I said, I've got to go. Dad's missing. Mm. Or he hasn't come home. Uh, I drove home. I got a taxi home from Ultimo to Padstow, got in the car, drove back to La Perouse, which isn't mm. a bad hike. Yeah. And just basically um, by that stage, there was – mum wasn't there. She couldn't – she said, no, I'll just stay at home. Mm. Uh, there was a couple of police there. Uh, there was a few people there. And, and there was um, – and you just you don't really know what to do, John. You're just walking along aimlessly, mm. looking at the water because you just don't know what's going on. And I didn't know the full situation of exactly where it was. I, I saw his car and everything like that. Oh, well, yeah. I was there till it got dark. Uh, I can remember I went home and on 2KY in those days, Keir and Ricky was running a fishing show that used to come on around about 4 o'clock on the Saturday morning. Mm. And, and I rang them. And said, "Look, can you just do me a favour? My dad's missing. Can you get all the, all the blokes that are going out fishing uh, Saturday morning to? Can they keep a lookout? And by this stage, the water police was out, and I got there probably five five thirty on the, the Saturday morning, and the sun was just coming up. And there are people everywhere, but unbeknownst to me, there was another gentleman that was with dad at the time mm. um, that he didn't speak about." and he got washed off the rocks himself. Mm. Uh, now, they found Dad's body because he was wearing a life jacket. Mm. Uh, they found his body at the, well, at the inlet part to Malabar Beach, oh, so yeah. on the headland mm. of uh, where the Coast Golf Course meets Randwick Golf Course at Malabar, opposite the sewerage works. Mm. Uh, they found his body there, so he'd, he'd gone into the water. Uh, the tide was going out, and then a suddenly had come up, so it pushed him north. Yeah. To, to that point, and the water police uh, picked him up. And I, I will never forget the phone call. And the water police said, You need to get to uh, San Susie to our base just near the um, uh, the Captain Cook Bridge there, near the swimming pool at San Susie. Yeah. Uh, you need to identify a body which we believe to be 
your father. Oh, goodness. So, so I've, I've had to drive from La Perouse to San Susie. It was the most harrowing drive I've ever had in my life. And this is a Saturday morning. And, and I identified Dad's body um, probably around about oh, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then I had to drive home and I had to tell Mum. Ah, oh, dear me. Your wonderful mum, Anne, has managed wonderfully well since his passing. She doesn't waste a minute. She's across everything that's happening in the world. And in recent years, Glenn, she's become a regular tweeter. She's not aggressive. She's not opinionated. She'd rather be giving somebody a rap for doing well in their chosen field or encouraging someone who's down on their luck. She's a very special lady. Yes, John, she, she's 82 years of age at the moment. She'll probably abuse me for telling everyone that. Oh. But uh, you've never seen a more active uh, octogenarian and you've never seen an octogenarian adapt to social media like she has. She's been very, very lucky. When, when Dad passed away, uh, a number of, of people would refuse to let Mum sit at home. Mm. Uh, and, and that kept her going kept her active and out and either to lunch or uh, that. And, of course, uh, then all the, the, the children, um, you know, the grandchildren were there at that stage. Uh, my my nephew, Malachi, he was born, my sister, Justine, uh, Malachi hadn't been born uh, when, when Dad when Dad died. Malachi was born on the, uh, on the 1st of July uh, of 2002. So... Uh, he's been there, and Justine doesn't live that far from Mum, so she was very active. Uh, they were living at over Wallara Way at that stage, but she'd drive over there uh, just to look after the kids, and they moved to Kingsford, uh, which was good. My, my uh, elder sister, was she lives at Wyong. Uh, she'd be up there all the time, but she, she loves going to, to the races. Uh, Kembla was a, her favourite track. The committee were great to her. Mm. Uh, they invited down just to come to the committee lunch at the races, and, uh, of course, we had the gong last Saturday. Uh, there's a memorial rose garden at Kembla Grange because Dad actually, uh, in his retirement, um, got those roses up and going. He was actually employed by the AJC as a gardener when he oh, retired, Dad. I saw Bob, him Bob there Charlie. several times, Glenn, working in yeah. his own little garden. He had it in magnificent order. He loved it, didn't he? Yeah, Bob Charlie was the boss of the AJC. They're a very, very close friend of Mum and Dad's, and he, he offered Dad the job. Uh, this was before they built the theatre of the horse and the like, but those people that can remember Ramwick in the old days, Dad had looked after from the fig tree bar yeah. around the back of the tea house all the way up past the uh, the entrance uh, there to the, the, the horse stalls near the office. Uh, and that was his little patch of ground there at Ramwick and, um, until he retired. Uh, he was he, that. That was his. That was his life. Getting to the races there, he'd turn up. He'd turn up Good Friday, knowing it was Doncaster Day the next day, yes. to make sure he had to water uh, the garden. He'd go fishing in the morning and then water the garden at lunchtime because he didn't yeah. want the the flowers to be wilting when everyone turned up for Doncaster Day on Easter Saturday. He showed the same professionalism in everything he did throughout life. Remarkable. So, how many grandkids does Zan have now? Seven or eight? Uh, well, uh, uh, my, Michelle has two, Casey and Reese, and mm. Casey has three children. So there's three great grandchildren. Justine has three. Mm. She has Malachi, Tig, and Inez. Mm. Uh, I have uh, Denise and I have three. We have Ashley, Todd, and uh, Ruby or Lauren, mm. and we have one grandchild. Uh, 
So uh, she's referred to as Gigi. Uh, <laughs> Casey bestowed that name on her for the grandkids to uh, – that was her moniker, and Gigi, which is quite apt in a way for yes, someone that's grown up with horses all their life. So Gigi, of course, for great grandmother, and uh, keeps her very, very active. And uh, you know, she takes it. She takes an interest. She's got a. She's got a passion, John, uh, about jockeys and, and trainers, mainly sort of lower tier trainers and lower tier jockeys. And she is very, very concerned if they're injured. She wants to know. She's drummed into me that any time there's a fall mm. that I'm hosting, I've got to find out the condition of the jockey oh, God, uh, because yeah. their relatives are, are at home watching and they don't get a massive flow of information. So anything we can put across the sky airwaves or through social media to inform people of a, a jockey's condition uh, that, that uh, their family would be very appreciative of. And even with trainer, she loves a battling trainer that's only got a couple of horses. And whenever they train a winner, uh, she's tickled pink, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, any of those, John. She's, she's too good for me. I can't keep up. <laughs> Your one and only diversion from racing is the occasional game of golf. Have there been any expressions of interest from Liv? Uh, well, Greg hasn't run me, John, but I, I've been waiting for him. I, 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 uh, I get up to uh, – I've spotted him at, uh, up near Noosa a couple of times and I, I've gone to tap him on the shoulder, but he's a very, very busy man. But uh, I'll just keep chipping away, just getting, just use, using the usual set of mugs that I could get an earn off each week. <laughs> One of your great mates and great fans, in fact – uh, Sky's North Queensland form guru, Michael Charge, suggested I should talk to you on the podcast. I agreed with him, and here you are. It's been a great journey, Glenn Munsey. Uh, you've put your own mark on the way you do things, and I know your dad would have been your greatest fan if he were with us today, and I wish he was. Yeah, that's probably my greatest regret, John, that... Um Dad didn't see – he saw me in the early days, but, you know, I was uh, very, very young and uh, very raw at that time. But to, to see uh, – and, you know, to see the number of people that turned up at his funeral and the number of people that actually turned up from the tap. So, uh, and we, uh, we actually bought a race in his honour. Uh, not long after he passed away, and that was done by the marketing department just as a show of respect. Uh, for for my family and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, to see what, how I've moved across and moved through this world, and I, I think you know, I've I've spent the last twenty two years educating people about uh, betting, uh, taking fixed odds rather than paramutual and things like that, and uh, uh, to see the size and the scope of what uh, sports betting and fixed odds betting on races has become, John, at least I can uh, say to myself, well, I've been a part of that uh, journey and hopefully I, I've found people a winner in the time and if not, I may have educated them to make it easier for them to find a winner. Great to catch up, Glenn. Thanks for being with us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Sydney Racing has a new $2 million thoroughbred race with the historic Group 2 Villiers getting a new name and a huge prize money boost from $750,000 to $2 million. A few months ago, Racing New South Wales and the Australian Turf Club made a joint announcement confirming that the great old end-of-year Randwick Mile, the Villiers, would be renamed the Ingham 
in honour of one of racing's most influential and successful racing families. The inaugural running of the Ingham will be held at Randwick on December the 10th. The sponsorship for every other race on the Ingham program, including the half million dollar Inglis Nursery, are being sold down with all proceeds raised on the day to be donated to the Ingham Institute for Applied Medical Research. A great cause, a great day, and a top program highlighted by the Ingham.